As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Everybody to the Total Soccer Show. It's a proper full review, which means there's music, which means we get the hello and welcome, which means you get myself, Taylor Rockwell, and you get Joe Lowry returning once again. Joe, how you doing, buddy? It's been so long since last we spoke. <laughs> yeah, it's been what uh, ten hours, something like that. Mm-hmm. And this does feel this feels more natural. The, the music leading us yeah. in that we're not hearing right now, but that listeners will be hearing. That just really sells it for me. So what was your approach to reviewing this one? Because I'm East Coast. So yeah, I think when we wrapped, it was like 1145 last night. I woke up and watched it again this morning and took some notes. What about you? Did you stay up to get it done or did you wake up extra early today? I did. And I I had energy fueled by the Phoenix Suns losing game three of the NBA (laughs) finals. So I poured myself a bowl of cereal. Well, actually, that's not true. I watched the first half again, then I poured the cereal to get me through the second half. Then I watched the second half, and then Taylor, my favorite part is I went to bed. That was that was nice. That was That's good. always a positive thing. I promise <laughs> I'm not stalling, but I am now fascinated. Joe, what was the bowl of cereal? What was the thing that made you feel better when the Suns didn't get that win? So the the bowl of cereal was half uh, shoot cocoa cocoa pebbles I believe mm-hmm. and then half peanut butter kashi which there has become sort of an obsession of mine recently. I like it. Uh, very good, very good soccer watching fuel. Just good for any moment. You know, it's it's top notch. It's it's yeah, man. It's the salty and the sweet. It's the healthy <laughs> yeah. and the garbage. I like it, Joe. <laughs> I like it. Uh, and I promise I am not stalling uh, because I do want to talk about the U.S. Uh, and their one no win over Haiti to start their Gold Cup campaign. A game that I think we left last night being confused by, befuddled by, not necessarily positive, but not necessarily negative. Um, 
And I will also add that I, I found myself like I was watching it so intently yesterday that I did have a moment where I thought, like, do we really need to rewatch games? Like, is this a thing that we used to do just because, like, Daryl and I would be in studio and we'd be talking during the game. So we kind of wanted to make sure that we'd seen everything. And I was debating whether or not we needed to. And yet rewatching it this time, we definitely need to because you really do pick up some things when the emotion is removed and you know what's happening. You can then just pay attention to the patterns, to the, the sequences, to the things that worked and the things that didn't. And I found I find myself, I think, cautiously more OK with some things or at least excited for what comes next. Joe, how are you feeling after your rewatch? I'm feeling certainly more informed. I think we got some answers to questions that we had, and, and maybe the answers aren't exactly what we want to hear or what listeners want to hear. Mm-hmm. But going back through and, and like you said, once the emotion is out of it and when you know what's going to happen, I just feel like we have a better handle on what's going on. Also, I mean, after we rewatch and after we recorded the quick take hot take, Berhalter had some comments as well that he gave to media. And so yep. it's also helpful. Sometimes he had a comment about how the attack just wasn't good enough, how they weren't creating chances. He didn't like some of the runs and the movement in the box and around the box. I think that stuff is is sometimes good to hear when we're watching back through trying to figure out, are we just missing something? Were those runs there? And it's helpful to have the manager of the team come out and say, yeah, th- some things just weren't sharp enough and it's going to need to be better. I'm glad you uh, you got, took some notes on that press conference because I saw a few little things in there that I thought were were particularly interesting as well. But before we get to that, before we get to the game itself, it's probably worth also resetting how we got here or what this team is. We talked about it when we did our roster breakdown. We were focused on the players that were here, but also went into some of the players that were not. Joe, we don't necessarily have to go like player by player, name by name, but uh, for maybe folks who missed that one or are a little bit confused or just need that refresher, why don't we have some of those big names here? A lot of the big guns, Greg Berhalter wanted to just give some time off. So Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna and, and that cohort, they just played Nations League and it, it was time for them to have a little bit of rest. And preseason in a lot of European clubs, at least, is already starting. So there's not a ton of rest involved there, but giving them some time off was important. And a lot of the younger guns who are looking to find a more stable club situation or who are looking to impress, say, Jose Mourinho at club level, they are not here either to give them the best chance to do that. And so what kind of resulted from that is it's kind of a January camp roster, right? It's yep. very heavy on Major League Soccer players. 19 of the 23 are from MLS. There are four guys then, quick math, who are from abroad. And so it is, it's, it's kind of experimental. And the, the great purpose of this roster, really of this tournament for the U.S. Yes, they want to win, and that is the goal, and getting a 1-0 result in the first game of the group stage is a good step towards that, even if the performance wasn't 100% positive. But really, the the biggest practical purpose is to prepare the bottom of the U.S.'s mm-hmm. future roster for World Cup qualifying. It's to get maybe guys like Kellen Acosta a few more minutes. It's to figure out who's our fourth center back maybe going to be, who's our you know second or third goalkeeper going to be, who's our number nine, stuff like that. It's to answer those little questions, well, mm-hmm. big questions in certain instances. And, and the idea is to get these players playing so Berhalter can evaluate them and figure out okay, which of these guys are going to complement the, the top 15, the top 17 guys that he already has penned in for that World Cup qualifying roster in September. Yeah, and, and so when we look at this team and this performance, I think part of where I was confused last night is that if it was the U.S., this U.S. team trying to do the things we've seen the senior team do, the exact style of play, the exact sort of rotations and movements and on-the-ball decision-making – 
like I would have enjoyed seeing that because then we can know like, okay, that guy can definitely do that as a backup or a third choice option. If we need it, this player can't do that. And I think as soon as we started to see like the next level of experimentation where we did have a formation change, we did have some players playing out of position or just doing different things, I get a little bit confused. And I think, honestly, I'm not trying to annoy people with this one, but there's an element of Klinsman PTSD for me where as soon as it feels like we're just throwing stuff out there and trying different stuff and like, let's see what happens here. You can do that once or twice in a game, but once you do that seven or eight times, I get a little bit nervous. And I think Watching it that first time, some of what was happening made less sense to me. I think more of it makes sense now, but I also think, and this is where that press conference comes in, I, like, I had seen that quote from him about how this isn't an experimental team. We're not just experimenting. We're, we're here to try to win this tournament. But I, I think I missed that the quote that le- led into that was him basically saying, we don't have any wing depth. We don't have a ton of natural wingers <laughs> in this pool. So we are going to try some different things, and we will try people out of position, and we will try Jassy Zardes on the wing or Daryl DK on the wing, or we might go with a front two. And I think what he was trying to convey is that we are going to do some different things. You are going to see some different looks, but it's not a wholly experimental team. We're not just kind of throwing it all out, trying something different and seeing what sticks and what doesn't. I think it's meant to be building on what we know works and what we know these players are capable of combined with what we think they might be capable of or what might put them in a better position. And so with that in mind, I think I'm more okay with this result as it was, but also uh, as it might build towards something else. So that is my kind of broad takeaway before we get into the specifics. Uh, Joe, anything else to add about the sort of background of this one before we get into the game itself? Yeah, just quickly, I think, and we're going to talk about why this performance maybe wasn't as sharp or as positive as we'd hoped it would be. But I also think that that's fair and somewhat justified with this group coming together. It is different players, Taylor. I think you just went through that very well. And so there's going to be a lot of people and there have already been a lot of people being overly negative about this game. And that's if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But I think there are reasons to be optimistic. This is game one of this tournament with a group that doesn't have a lot of experience playing together. You know, let's look at it through that lens. Yeah. And so I think the, the, the differentiation there is key to me because... Reggie Cannon, if he were fully fit, would have started this game. And Shaq Moore, we know, is sort of the understudy to Reggie Cannon for this squad. And in terms of overall depth, I think we would put Serginho Dest as the number one right back if that's where he wants to play. I think right now it's Reggie Cannon and then maybe DeAndre Yedlin behind him. And then it's Shaq Moore. So if we're looking at Shaq Moore as being our fourth choice right back, and even then that might not be necessarily set in stone, I think we can't expect him to do the same things as Serginho Dest and expecting him to play the exact same way. He's not going to do that because he's not Dest. He doesn't play for Barcelona. He doesn't have that confidence and maybe not that ability. And so I think you have to then limit what you're looking at and think, is he doing fundamentally what we want to see him do and doing it well enough that we can kind of rely on him? Or are there those same old concerns, Jackson Ewell, uh, that we see over and over again? And that is where maybe the concern comes in. So I think with all that stage set, Joe, let's get to the lineup we talked about in the quick take hot take. We were both Slightly confused, but mostly not surprised by what we saw uh, after the rewatch. Uh, where are you on that starting 11? Yeah, I'm kind of exactly where I was last right. night. Still kind of confused as to why Daryl DK didn't start. And I haven't seen any explanation for that, really. And maybe it's just the minutes management that you'd mentioned last night. But that that was strange to me, having Zardes at the 9 over Daryl DK. 
The rest of it made a lot of sense. You already mentioned how Reggie Cannon was out with a little injury, so Shaq Moore gets the start. I thought he was actually very, very good in this game. Otherwise, I'll run through it very quickly. It's that same 4-3-3 shape to start this game that Berhalter typically goes with. Matt Turner in goal, Shaq Moore and Sam Vines at right back and left back, and then Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson as the two center backs. Jackson Ewell at the six, which I know made a lot of people unhappy. I was a little bit disappointed in that myself. Kellen Acosta and Sebastian Legette as the eights. Zardes as the nine. Paul Areola on the right, and then he goes down, I believe, in the 14th minute, or subs off in the 14th minute due to an injury. We don't really know his status yet, I don't think. And then uh, on the left side, it was Jonathan Lewis playing that tucked in, sometimes, other times a little bit wider role on the left. And Joe, like jumping ahead, is there a player who you now come away thinking they had a really good game from that starting 11? Not talking about Hmm. the substitutes or how it changed up, but is there somebody that you think was better on the ball or did a better defensive job or was just more threatening than you might have noticed first time through? Because I will say, uh, Sebastian Legette, I was more negative on when we were recording the quick take hot take and I was kind of uncertain about all he had done. I'm more positive on him this time around. I think he was doing a lot that was his responsibility and maybe a few things that were not that he was forced into doing. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's good on Legette. I think he's a guy that looks better when there are better players around him. I think yep. he'll look better with a, a Musa and Adams midfield or McKenny Adams midfield yeah. versus a Ewell and a Costa midfield. But I, I like that, Taylor. I'm going to be greedy and take two real quick. Shaq Moore, we mentioned him already, super active in the first 20 minutes, just like a lot of the U.S.'s right side especially was early on in this game. I think the U.S. started well, and Moore was a big part of that. He was active defensively. Uh, I don't think he really got beat 1v1 much in the opening stages of this game. Stepped up to press some, which I really liked, and then played a lot of really nice whipped-in balls with his right foot. Bending, curving, just just nice stuff, and he had the ball into the box for the goal, and it takes some deflections and all that jazz. But I think Moore was really good in this game. And then Kellen Acosta, I thought, was maybe the United States' best player. I came out way hotter on his performance than I thought I would. He was active in the press, and that was huge for me in this game because the U.S.'s pressing scheme was weird. We'll get to that later. We talked about it last night, too. But Acosta also showed some creativity on the ball that I didn't necessarily expect him to have. He has that little slipped ball into the box for Joachini in the 66th minute that Joachini then hits the post on. And if that shot had gone in, this is just the nature of soccer, we're all talking about that Kellen Acosta pass because it's a, a lovely slipped ball into the box. I mean, it's a great moment of creativity in a game where the U.S. largely lacked creativity. I thought Acosta was was very good in this one. Not perfect, not perfect by any stretch, but but good. I would put him in the Sebastian Legette category as well of a player who I think did what was asked of him pretty well, but then also had to adjust what he was doing, uh, certainly when he moves to a different position. But even in game, I think there's times when he has to kind of help figure some things out. And as a veteran, that's what we would expect. And so I think he backed that up pretty well. And then from the quick take, we were both pretty pleased with Walker Zimmerman. That has definitely not changed for me, especially in that first half. I thought his distribution was excellent. Yeah, I'm with you. My one caveat here is... I kind of wonder with how Haiti, how scattered Haiti were defending to start this game. Yeah. They're in a 4-4-2 mid-block, but Stu Holden said it on the broadcast they couldn't really figure out a way to put pressure on the ball, and that changed for them over the course of this game. They did solidify themselves defensively, but to start, Zimmerman just had acres of space to drive into. Jackson Yule could drop or just form a triangle with the center backs, and that was an immediate 3v2 advantage over Anton and Etienne at the top of 
Haiti's defensive shape. And so Zimmerman could just stride forward. Taylor, I think you could have taken some of that space and completed some of those passes. <laughs> Me, not so much. I mean, but I think hurtful? I, okay, I think cool. You, <laughs> I'll take that. Though. I That's think fine. you could have. Um, so I, I just want to say, I think a lot of center backs maybe would have looked good in that role. But to be fair to Zimmerman, he looks better than Robinson in a very similar set of circumstances. So there is something to be said for his distribution in this game. All right, we've talked about our initial thoughts, uh, what's changed, what hasn't changed. We've talked about some individual performers. Up next, we're, ga- we're going to get into the U.S. attack, the U.S. defense, what we saw, what we thought they were trying to do, what maybe they didn't do that well. But first, we're going to take a break. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joe. So let's talk about the the broader plan that we saw from Greg Berhalter. Let's go with the attack to start. How were the United States trying to build in their attack uh, in the maybe opening half? And how did you see that change as the game went on? So it looked very familiar. I don't know if you felt this way, Taylor, but it's the 4-3-3. It had, you know, Yule patrolling the central of midfield as that number six, sometimes dropping, as I mentioned earlier. Other times he'd step forward and then it was Acosta and Legette in front of him. And those players had freedom to move and rotate based on, or maybe they would cue some of the rotations out wide, but they would rotate with the wingers or with the fullbacks. And so with the U.S.'s lone goal in this game, it comes from Kellen Acosta finding a forward direct run. And that run is cued by Paul Areola, who started on the right wing, dropping down. And so and it's also cued by Shaq Moore being stretched wide and stretching experience out wide, Hades left back with the best name in this whole tournament. So it, it was a nice, well-worked, coordinated bit of off-ball movement that gets Zimmerman threading the needle to Acosta and then gets the ball in the box and Sam Vines heads it home at the back post. So there were some nice patterns. And Taylor, yep. I know you recognize some patterns on the left side. But my yes, my my issue in this game for the U.S. was they had some good moments, especially in the first 20, 30 minutes against a scattered Haiti defense. But it felt like once Haiti grew a little bit more comfortable in their defensive scheme and started to step their lineup, which they did around the 20, 25th, 30th minute, it felt like the U.S. lost some of that creativity. They, they lost the aggressiveness in attack. Or they struggled to find the balance between being too aggressive. I think they were a little bit too aggressive in moments at the start of the second half. They couldn't balance that with with regular up-tempo possession play, right? Berhalter talked about how he didn't think the passing was quick enough or he didn't think the attacking was good enough in the second half, especially, I think. And I agree with that. And I think that stemmed from an inability to to balance out how exactly they were attacking. And one other thing quick for me before I turn it back to you, Taylor. I think some of the U.S.'s attacking players were being put in good spots. I mentioned this last night, but just lacked the individual execution to to be dangerous in those spots. Jonathan Lewis, I don't think, had a very good game. Joe Acchini had an okay game coming on for Areola. It's maybe not his most natural position, but he's played out wide before, tucked inside anyway. I think those players were being put in positions to succeed at times by the system and just lack the individual quality, especially Lewis, to be able to make something happen 
out of the spots they were in. So that that's another problem that's maybe not quite as systemic, but still an issue for the U.S. in this tournament given the roster they have. So let me take a few things there. First off, yeah, with the positive things we saw, especially in the build-up to the goal, you're absolutely right. It's Kellen Acosta kind of finding net space, and then it's a quick ball out wide to uh, Shaq Moore, who then plays that low ball in, and the U.S. has numbers running onto it. They create some chaos. They create uncertainty. And a key thing here would be that Sam Vine's run, which leads, which is the goal, his headed goal, uh, is a late-arriving run. And I want to hold on that one to get back to the build-up to this play for a moment, because what I saw the U.S. doing really well, and this is partially why I think Sebastian Legette was a better performer than I had remembered, is that when he would get the ball, Legette, he was usually in that left-hand channel or on that left-hand side, And I think Haiti's approach was to slide over crowd numbers to one side of the field and try to kind of force the U.S. in there, make them uncomfortable, and ideally force a turnover. But what Legette kept doing was waiting for Haiti to do that and knowing that they were sort of trying to bait him into playing the ball to Jackson Yule, he would bypass that and bend it around Yule into Zimmerman, and that completely threw off Haiti's plan because then now the entire U.S. right side, Haiti's left side, is wide open, and they have to scramble back. And creating that scramble, creating the need to improvise on defense is what you want to do in attack because that's when what you've practiced, what you've trained for if you're the defensive team goes out the window and you've got somebody's got to step. Okay, I'll cover for that person. Okay, I'll cover for that person. But then the dominoes can start to fall. I think that happened for the U.S. in a negative way when Haiti would counterattack. But here I saw the U.S. sort of exploiting that lack of familiarity or that lack of uh, defensive improvisation. And I do think that's a big part of where the goal comes from. But after that, you stop seeing those late arriving runs as much. And and many of the balls in I saw as the half went on were to a static Jossi Zardes or a static mm. Jonathan Lewis or a, a static Joaquini in the box. And they kept, I think, I, I don't know if it was expecting earlier delivery or if the runs were just too aggressive, but either way, you didn't have anybody sort of crashing at the far post, getting there late and creating that uncertainty, making the team have to panic a little bit. Instead, it was just too steady. It was too... Same, same every single time. And I do think part of that is because Haiti looked threatening on the counter a couple different times in those first 20 minutes. And the U.S., I think, got a little bit nervous about getting caught out and stopped being threatening from an attacking standpoint. So that's my read on why things slowed down uh, in that first half, Joe. Uh, how does that sound to you? That sounds good to me, Taylor. I think that's good analysis. The, the one thing I want to add, just continuing that thought, I took down in my notes after rewatch that Jossie Zardes, as that number nine, he dropped in more than maybe I would have expected him to do as that number nine. Because while that's not technically his strength, he has been doing it a little bit more with Columbus. Still, though, I wasn't I wasn't expecting to see him in those spaces quite as much. And he did all right. He did okay with the ball. He didn't turn it over a whole lot, and he didn't necessarily advance play either. So he he was kind of just in that middle ground. But I think for the U.S. in this tournament, when your two real wingers are Jonathan Lewis and Paul Ariola. And now you're down to just Jonathan Lewis in this game. You need that nine and the player in that spot. If the central midfielders aren't uber creative and when it's Kellen Acosta and Legette as the two eights, they're really not. I think you, you really could use that number nine and bringing some element of creativity and ball progression. Like we've seen with Harry Kane at the Euros, like we saw with Danny Olmo for Spain in the semifinals against Italy, even though they lost that game. Having someone who can drop down, create an advantage in midfield, and in cue opportunities for someone to run in behind, I don't think that central attacking boost was really there at all. Yeah. Zardes doesn't bring that skill set, and that's that's fine. That's not his game, but it just is another little flaw in this roster, and I think the lack of 
real ball progression and, and creativity in central spaces leading up all the way into zone 14 and then into the middle of the box. I mean, Taylor, I can't remember a chance that was created from zone 14. Everything came down the wings. Everything came down and, and attacked the Man City zones, which is fine, but it makes you one-dimensional and it allowed Haiti to prepare for those balls into the box. And then it just leads to some stagnant attacking yeah. play. The only things I can think of that were even like halfway like that would be when a winger would get down the side and then cut inside to get a shot off. Right, uh, right. Lewis had one of those. Joaquini had one yeah. of those. But I don't think that quite counts since it's still fundamentally attacking down the wings. And this is where uh, this will be my first of two, I think, sort of like uh, – expectant optimism is how I'm going to phrase it because XO. I'm, I'm going right? to take, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to take, yeah, exactly. <laughs> XO. Uh, I'm going to take Greg Berhalter at his word here. I'm going to take the, or maybe not even his word, but I'm going to take the explanation that they're managing Daryl DK's minutes. They don't want to rush him into anything. He's played a lot of minutes in a lot of different situations. They want to give him some time. I'm going to choose to believe that that is true. And I'm going to hope that we see him, if not start the next game, then maybe get 30 minutes or even a full half. And then maybe he starts the final group stage game. And then I do hope that he is the starter from there on out. And that is his minutes managed because this, with that said, like this was a game where I think he would have made a difference. Cause if you are trying to get, get down the channels to ping those balls in and you're not trying to build through the middle, wouldn't you want a very good target forward who can win some stuff in the air, but has proven to be a, a fox in the box at times and make smart runs and can get onto a driven one at the near post? That seems like Daryl DK's skill set and especially his skill set right now. So I'm hoping that it was just w- what was said and not, ah, we think Giassi can do it better. Cause if it's that, then I, I have some concerns, then I have some issues. But if we see more of the, more of Daryl DK and especially if we see more of him as he gets on the end of a cross or gets a good shot off from one, then I feel like, okay, we're building towards something. And once again, the logic returns. It's about logically building for me. That's the big thing. Well, and, and for me, Taylor, I think there's even value. And just getting more chances to evaluate Daryl DK. Like, I, I don't necessarily yeah. know that he would have been a better fit in this game, like for like compared to Jossie Zardes. Zardes' movement in the box is good. And I, I think in this game, he was getting into some good spots and the connections just weren't quite there with the service that was coming in. Maybe he was a half step late. Maybe the ball was a, a six, eight, 12 inches in front of him, whatever the situation was. I, I don't necessarily think he's a horrible fit for Zardes is a horrible fit for this game once the ball progresses into the final third. But man, DK maybe could help more and build up. And even if that's not true, I'd still just like to get another look at him. I'd like to get an extended look at him because World Cup qualifying starts in, we're in July, right? It starts in two months. I had to, had to count that. I'm not proud of that. But I mean, it, it's so soon. It's so soon. And we haven't seen all that much of Daryl DK in this tournament, in, in his US career, excuse me. So I think that's a slight missed opportunity not to see a bit more of him. But again, this is game one of this tournament. So I don't want to overreact. It's very likely we could see, like you're saying, uh, more and more DK as this tournament goes along. So I'm not panicking. I'm just thinking, man, maybe that was a missed opportunity. Yeah, so I have a feeling that if the U.S. is able to go deep, maybe not win it, maybe make the final. I hope win it. That would be fine with me. But, like, there's a decent chance we then go back and look at this game, and if we watched it a third time, I'm not saying we're going to do that, but if the U.S. does go deep, I have to believe some of what they got wrong here gets corrected and some of what they did right gets uh, doubled down upon. And so then maybe this is a stronger performance. But if things don't change or if it looks like we're trying something else, now we're trying something else, then maybe we look at this as a more negative performance. So I'm open to it being uh, either one right now, hopefully more positive as we go. But I think for it to continue to develop and be strong, I think we do need just better 
attacking decision-making, I think, because sometimes that cross would come in, but it would be a couple extra touches or getting to the end line, and then the cross comes in. Sometimes it would be a little bit from deeper. Sometimes it would be a cutback and a few more passes, and then the cross comes in. And you do have to have variety in the way you're attacking. You do have to have variety in the way you're creating space to get those chances. But there's a difference to me between variety and an erratic approach. And we really towed that line last night. So Hmm. sometimes I would see Jonathan Lewis trying to stand people up and take them on 1v1. Sometimes it was a quick cross into the box. Sometimes it was waiting for an overlapping run. But again, when you don't get those late arriving runs, when you don't have a ton of movement, to me that looks less like a plan and more like, ah, get the ball into the attack and then we'll kind of figure it out. And I don't always love when things are down to individual improvisation because – As we've already said, we don't necessarily have the talent that we would normally have when trying that approach. So to me, it becomes much more about attacking within the system. Joe, any other points on the attack in general before we talk about what the U.S. did defensively? You talking about the U.S. towing that line in in attack and in possession. Man, I I just can't help but think that Paul Areola was really key to this game for the first 10, 15 minutes. Because his movement was so direct and so... Confident, moving both behind the back line and, and breaking the back line and creating space that way and, and getting open that way potentially. And also his runs back towards the ball. That's part of the goal sequence. Ariola just looked like a guy who knew the rotations and he was helping that right side look really sharp, especially relative to the left. I, I almost think, man, that he's going uh, just that his stock raised so much in this game, even though he comes down with an injury, right? Even though he doesn't play this whole game. It's getting harder and harder for me, even though the U.S. winger depth chart at the top of it is really strong. It's getting harder for me to imagine that Paul Areola won't be a real factor in World Cup qualifying. And some people are going to be angry about that. Some people may be happy about that. But I just think that might be the way it is at this point. Yeah, I'm with you. I think watching those what, 13, 15 minutes again, uh, his movement is really strong. And his ability to play a ball in and, and, and be on the end of a cross or, or bringing down a ball like over the shoulder. We've talked about how he, he can scrap and he can uh, make those darting runs, but he also has a technical precision that I think sometimes gets overlooked. And that was on display in this game. But really, it was just his awareness of what the U.S. is trying to do in the lead up to that goal. It is Kellen Acosta running into space. It is a great like line splitting ball from Zimmerman. It's a good overlapping run from Shaq Moore, but it's also Paul Areola vacating space that pulls defenders with him. And that all felt very automatic to me. It felt very deliberate and less so when Joe Aquini comes on it. You can just see that that extra second it takes to remember or to to correct the positioning and then make that run back or to drop into space. And I think those little delays accumulate. And when you have one second delay here and three seconds there and two seconds there and five seconds there, it starts to build and things just slow down. And again, I think that goes towards when that ball eventually gets crossed in. You have two or three bodies standing in the box, but not a ton sprinting to get on the end of it. And you don't get a ton of creativity there. So I think we can see how the U.S. will evolve and adapt without Areola, but I'm with you that I think he was a lot more important to this team than I thought he was maybe going to be. So that's on the attacking side. For the defense, I was pretty confused in the quick take hot take because it seemed to me like at times they were sending Acosta and Lejet wide almost to sort of funnel Haiti back into the middle, and I've since moved away from that. I think there was a different plan in mind that did involve Lejet going wide on occasion. I don't think they wanted Haiti attacking down the channel. I don't think it was necessarily, we're going to funnel them into the middle and then counterattack that way. But I think the U.S. was more about like setting traps and then pressing than it was a full press or a full sit back and defend block sort of situation. Yeah, I totally agree, Taylor. I think there was a lot of 
there was a lot of thinking going on yep. when the U.S. pressed in this game because I, I agree with you. I think there was a deliberate plan to try to bait Haiti or to trap them and force them to do what the U.S. wanted to do. And in a sense, that's what pressing is all about, right? Finding the right angle to press the ball carrier to then force them into your trap, force them into pressure, things like that. The U.S. in this game did it in a strange way, though, and I want to yep. lay the foundation before I flip it back to you. The U.S. are in their 4-3-3 shape, and they're pressing in that shape, and they've been doing that since January of 2020, before all hell broke loose globally. They, they started doing that against Costa Rica in January camp game. Okay, sorry, it was February, actually, February 1st or February 2nd. Um, and, and so they start pressing in this 4-3-3 shape. And that's a good shape to high press in because you have numbers in the front line that you can really suffocate an opposing team's build-up unit. And you also have, with the U.S., ideally, you have mobility in central midfield to shift side to side and trap the ball against the sideline and shift and recover. And it, it has worked very well for the U.S. in the past. In this game, though, because the United States was trying to bait Haiti and really almost playing mind games with their press and, and sometimes yeah. force Haiti's goalkeeper Sylvester into making passes, which I don't necessarily think is his strong suit. Other nope. times they were trying to bait a center back into passing, into pressure. They they weren't going full speed with their press. At times, and I said this last night, it ended up looking like more of a static, still 4-3-3 high block, right? Yep. Where there's not a lot of movement. They're just, the U.S. was waiting. They're waiting for the pass to happen or for the right person to get the ball before they engage. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. And when you do that in that 4-3-3 shape, while it can be a good active pressing shape, Berhalter's even talked before about how he's not really comfortable with it as a block, as a block defensive shape, because my, my thought is, and this is my view, and I, I'm guessing he would share it, is you have so much space open out wide, right? You have these pockets of space outside of the central midfielders, behind the wingers, and in front of the fullbacks that are just sitting there wide open on the wings. If you're not moving and you're not shifting and you're not ready to go and deny those pockets of space, if you're just kind of standing, those pockets are so open. And Haiti, in this game, when they were waiting, or when the U.S. was waiting to engage their pressing line, Haiti just picked those spaces apart. They picked the U.S. apart and found those pockets of space 10 times in this game, maybe more. It, it was a weird choice, and, and maybe it was a smart choice on paper in terms of how the U.S. tried to press, but it, it really didn't pay off in this game. No, and I think, again, I think we'll see what happens with the next game and how it evolves, but yeah, I think yeah. overall, the defensive side, especially high up, was one that I came away still without a ton of answers because I think everything you just said there is correct, Joe, but I didn't then see them sort of the U.S. moving towards, okay, we got to figure out a more unified approach, at least not in the first half. It kept being, yeah, basically that kind of high semi-block 4-3-3, but that front three would be spread out enough that it necessitated, normally would necessitate those two number eights uh, in Leget and Acosta to step higher, maybe be 10 yards behind that front line if that but filling those gaps. So now you've almost got a front five that makes it really hard to pass through. You've got Ewell sitting deeper to patrol if there is a ball sort of over the top into that medium range area. He can collect that or one of the fullbacks can step and win that one. And sometimes the U.S. would do that, but other times they would then press with that front three, but the midfield wouldn't. And then you've got, instead of a 10-yard gap, oftentimes it was a 30-yard gap between the front line and the midfield, and Haiti could obviously send numbers central to be on the ball 
wall. And this is where the domino effect would occur, that as soon as they would do that and play it in, one of the midfielders, if it was Sebastian Legette, would have to then, let's say, yeah, let's say it was like marginally on his side. He would then slide over to cover that player, but he leaves space out wide. And then if it goes back to the center back and the center back then plays it forward to the, the wide attacker for Haiti, if Lewis has stepped high to press, now there's a big gap there. And that is how Haiti, I think, kept pulling the U.S. apart. But it wasn't, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it wasn't them doing anything that elaborate. It wasn't particularly genius or difficult to figure out. It was sort of like, right. oh, you've given yeah. us space. Okay, we'll pass it there. Oh, you've given us space there. Okay, we'll pass it there. And I think the U.S. sort of their inability to limit that, and I think at times to even make it worse, uh, was, was on display. I think Jonathan Lewis especially, to focus on him again, would – I think try to anticipate like, oh, they're going to go back to the center back. So uh, now that's the pressing trigger. I'm going to go. But I think the pressing trigger is when that ball is actually passed, not when it seems like it's going to be passed. Because twice in the first 20 minutes, he would gamble on that ball is going to go backwards and start to sprint to close down the defender that he thought it was going to. And instead, the player on the ball would then pass it to the player that Jonathan Lewis had just left. And now, again, you have Sebastian Legette has to step to that player, but still cover the angle for his player. Hope Sam Vines is filling in behind. And there there was just too many dominoes falling too easily. That's the third time I've referenced dominoes. I'll try to stop from here. <laughs> but those sort of moments of disconnect stood stood out large to me as I rewatched because those are the things that normally you expect Burhalter to pull somebody over and have a word or to talk it out. And maybe he was wanting to see if these youngsters, if these less veteran national team players could figure it out themselves. And if that's the case, then I'm okay with it because you want to see that type of thing. But it, it again is a thing that as we go forward in this tournament, if we keep seeing that sort of disconnect, I think that's a thing we've seen from the U.S., most recently in Olympic qualifying, and it doesn't get solved, and we know how that goes. So it's definitely an area of concern for me that then, if it gets addressed and resolved, becomes not an area of concern, but an area of like genuine happiness. Because here's a problem. We fix that problem. It's not a problem anymore. And that's basically what you want when it comes to tactics and in-game management. This, I think, is the biggest thing that I'm looking for for that game against Martinique on Thursday is, is, is the pressing system different is it more normal because this was just so strange and i've never seen the u.s approach yeah high pressing like this certainly not that i can remember maybe it's happened would, would you say it was high pressing that that's where i continue but to that's be the thing it's right on the line it's right, right on the yeah. line between we, we're just playing mind games and waiting and we're just stepped up weirdly high and leaving space in midfield and other times the u.s legitimately did press there were some really good pressing moments in this game but it happened maybe 40% of the time. And when you're high pressing, you can't make, you can't right. have that percentage be, it's not sustainable. Is what I'm trying to say. It's not sustainable. So and can, can that, I jump in there? I, I want to see it. Please. Yeah. Please jump in. Because I, I, I'm totally with you and I'm glad you brought this up because the other aspect was that a lot of the pressing to me seemed to be, I said I wasn't going to do dominoes anymore. So I'll try to find something <laughs> else, but it, it was, like, if you want to have periods of pressing and then periods of sitting off, that makes sense. You can't press the sure. whole game. But normally when that's the case, it's the unit sits off and then the unit high presses. And right. sometimes that happened in this game and sometimes it didn't. But other times it would be very individual that if the ball went to the right back, Lewis step like presses that player. If it goes back to the goalkeeper, now Zardes is pressing the goalkeeper. Now if it goes to the, the other side of the field, then somebody else is stepping. But it was never a full unit cutting off options and slowly trapping Haiti, it, it felt much more like like players were activated as the ball went into their area. And as soon as it wasn't there anymore, they sort of stopped or would drop back into where they had been. But it wasn't this 
automatic thing where everybody was high intensity moving to limit options. It was like, oh, I'm going to step out to you and now I'm going to back off. Oh, I'm going to step out to you and back off. And it makes Haiti move the ball faster, I think, but it doesn't put them into really difficult situations. I think sometimes they put themselves into difficult situations when they went long, when they didn't need to or tried to get a little bit maybe too cute on the ball and got caught. But there was that other wrinkle. So it was sometimes like a unified high press. Sometimes it was a unified sitting off. Sometimes it was individuals making those runs. And then sometimes it was nobody necessarily doing anything that they were supposed to be doing. So that level of diversity to defensive approach doesn't seem like a thing that was intentional. It seems like some things didn't work. And again, I want to see how those things get solved as we go forward. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. I don't want to really, you know, continue this yeah. a whole lot longer. I just want to add some of the rotations in midfield were were off and just wrong, legit. And in Acosta and Yule struggled to figure out how to shift side to side. Sometimes the eights would be positioned too wide, other times too narrow. Some of that stuff is just weirdly basic, and so I was surprised to see that as well in the midst of all the macro tactical questions we've been asking and, and things that we've noticed. That was another thing. So yeah, just seeing an overhaul of how this press works, going back to basics in certain ways for that Martinique game, I think would go a long way. At the end of the day, though, it's a 1-0 win uh, in the opening yep. game of a tournament, and, yep. I, and I do think there are more positives to be discussed, and I think more positives, hopefully, as we go on in the tournament. Uh, we're going to talk about a few more of those positives and maybe a few more negatives uh, in the final segment of today's episode. But first, we're going to take a break to uh, to get our wits about us, make some changes, make some adjustments so that we have a unified <laughs> approach to our defensive scheme, and then we'll be fine. But we'll be right back. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joe, we are back. I want to talk about a few more things before we call this one a day. And I do, unfortunately, want to go back to a negative for a moment because Hmm. I focused more on Jackson Yule in this game than I think I did when watching live. And watching live, I thought he was okay. I thought we saw some of the kind of limitations in his game that we've seen in the past. I still think that's the case, but... I have more concerns. One of them, and I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely asking because I don't know, and I will own my ignorance here. Joe, does he get attacked for being really right-footed? Is that a thing that is no. usually a criticism of him? Okay. Because in this game, that stood out to me all the more. And I think it is a big reason why we don't see him play as quickly when he gets that ball, why the tempo drops a bit when he's on the ball. Because I'm not asking him to be Tyler Adams and cover the ground that Tyler Adams can or even play as quickly as Adams does. I, I think that requires playing in, in that Red Bull system for a couple years to really kind of get that level of, of tempo and pace. But what I did see was Yule just he needs more touches. And I think part of that is he's just maybe taking his time. He's a little bit more deliberate. But it is also that he does not like to play risky or potentially risky passes with his non-dominant foot, which means if he wants to play it to one side, that would usually require him to open up and play it with his left foot. What I saw was him either taking four extra touches to put himself into a position where then he could hit that ball with his right foot or sort of receive, recognize I'm not going to be able to play that ball and then play the ball back where it came from or dropping it off to a center back. But I thought in this game, that sort of right-footedness, and and maybe that's just me harping on a thing to talk about the larger thing, which is just that I saw him being slow on the ball when it wasn't necessary. And sometimes you can be slow to kind of pull defenders out or to really pick your spots if the team is sitting off that much deeper. But there were times in this game when it just did not need to be the case, and I talked about it in the quick take. I tweeted it uh, earlier today if you want to see the clip, but there's one in the 61st minute when he gets the ball, and I absolutely believe if he plays on the half turn and he's opening up as this ball is played to him, when he receives it, if he's sort of, if he's facing his own goal, if he turns to his right side and does that sort of uh, 180, so now he's, he's turned, he's going around on his right shoulder, and now he's facing the goal, the, def- the Haitian defender who's sprinting towards him is completely cut off from the play and either barges into the back of him or has to like sort of slow up his run. But either way, Ewell can then stride into space and now Haiti are caught in transition. But he receives it with his right foot. Then he takes another touch with his right foot to get away from the defender, but that takes him lateral. Then the defender sort of gets around him, so now he's on his right shoulder and Ewell has to cut back with his right foot and plays it back to a center back. And that's Really, like, the definition of, I think, what has frustrated people about Jackson Yule is that he can't turn and play quickly forward. It takes a couple extra touches, and if you're pressing him, those t- couple extra touches tend to be lateral or backwards, and that doesn't really facilitate better attacking play. It facilitates more possession, but not greater attacks. So I think I come away from this one... Maybe just a bit more, not frustrated, but I think, again, we saw some of the limitations of Jackson Ewell, and that feels to be a thing that has happened a couple games in a row or pretty consistently in the last few games for him in a U.S. jersey and makes me think that maybe we're reaching the point where that needs to be something that either we're building in, that we are going to be slower in possession when he's in there, or that it's Gianluca Busi or maybe Kellen Acosta starting there and we see what that looks like instead. 
I'd like to see Busio or Acosta against Martinique. I don't, I don't really feel the need to see another yep. 60 or 90 minutes from Jackson Ewell just for all the reasons you mentioned, Taylor. He didn't have a horrendous game. He wasn't awful in this game. He did some things well, and he did, he did do what you want him to do, Taylor. He did yep. play forward sometimes, and he did get the ball in the half turn and drive it forward. But generally speaking, I, I completely agree. He's too safe with how he plays. And when you have that theoretically ball dominant, silky yeah. smooth number six, you need some element of bravery because you don't have a ton of defensive cover in that spot if, if you're playing with a, a silky Pirlo kind of player. But you expect to have a real asset in possession and Jackson Ewell just hasn't been that in his last few caps at the U.S. There are a couple of, of classic long diagonal balls that he tries to hit in this game and, and maybe one or two of them come off, but there are several that just don't. He miss hits a long diagonal in the 10th minute. Again, yep. I think he underhits one in the 52nd minute. There's probably a couple others that I just didn't note. He doesn't check his shoulder sometimes, too, as the ball comes to him. And that's almost an unforgivable sin as a number six in this type of system. You need to be spatially aware. You need to know, okay, if there's no one coming behind me, I can turn and move into space. That's going to break this defense open. You didn't do that in the 58th minute, and he loses possession. The U.S. have to transition to defense. And so, yeah, it, it kind of feels like beating a dead horse at this point. I'm just ready to see more of someone else. And I, this is kind of a natural transition to Busio, I guess, unless you don't want us to go that direction. But I think Busio coming off the bench, he was good. He wasn't great. But just I think you could see in the fan base how ready they were to just see someone else. Yeah. Busio was still timid and had a lot of Jackson Ewell type moments. And he has that with Sporting Kansas City as well. But he did move the ball forward. And you could see that he was... Looking forward, and even just something as simple as that, I think, really got people excited. And I, I think he was good, not great, Busio coming off the bench. But I'd like to see him get another shot, or I'd like to see Acosta in that spot. I'd probably lean towards Busio. But just seeing something different and having a chance to evaluate someone yeah. else at that spot, I think, would go a long way. I think we're both appropriately, and I would say, in my mind correctly, trying to be gentle with this conversation. Because I think too often this narrative... This discourse becomes, he sucks, he's not good enough, or Burhalter's an idiot. And, and I really genuinely hate that. Not just because I don't like name calling. Name calling can be great and useful and wonderful. I said lots <laughs> of mean things about our, uh, our, our orange president who was and no longer is. Uh, but I, I think in this case, what I would say is that Greg Burhalter is not an idiot. Greg Burhalter is a, is, is a smart man who likes tactics and is a good manager. I want to say that straight up. I want to say Jackson Ewell is an accomplished midfield professional who does certain things very well. I'm not saying that to then do the Ned Stark butt and slam them both. What I'm saying is that when we break these games down, if Burhalter starts Ewell the next game, I'm not going to be like, well, this is so dumb. Why is he doing this? What an idiot. I understand that inclination. I genuinely do. But I think it makes it a less fun experience to watch these games and support the team if you've made your mind up on a player. If you've just decided Yule is not good enough, and if he's in there, I'm mad. Again, I understand it. I've been there. I just don't love feeling that way because I feel like then it sort of instantly roots you in, this isn't working, it's not going to work, and I don't like it. And I would always rather approach a game from a, okay, there must be an explanation. There must be a reason why this is happening. So let's try to figure out the reason. And I say all that to say that if it is Yule in the next game against Martinique, what I want to see is, okay... We saw the limitations. Berhalter's not a dummy. He saw the limitations again. So what is being done to change things up in a way that makes the U.S. look more attacking but also more defensively solid? And if he's putting players 
closer to Jackson Ewell so that Ewell can have a quick layoff laterally and then that player can play the ball forward and then Ewell can maybe step into the space that's opened up and receive the ball and now the U.S. are away, you can have that little pattern that allows him to get the ball in space that doesn't require him to do something that doesn't come naturally. And I think wanting him to be Tyler Adams, he's not going to be Tyler Adams. But if you put him in a position where you're accentuating his strengths and playing into them, it makes him a better player. It makes the team look that much better. So if it is him against Martinique, I want to see what's being done to help him look better. And if it is him and we don't see those differences, then I also want to know why. And I want to know what's not working. I'm never going to be in a situation where I say that player just, I do not want to see them ever again for the U.S. short of like some egregious off-field behavior. Uh, I, I think there's always going to be value in giving people different looks and different situations to see how they respond. All that is to say... I am sort of at the point where I feel like we've seen what we need to see from Jackson Ewell, and I do want to see somebody like Jean-Luc Busio come in who demands the ball and wants to play higher tempo. Even just the way he receives the ball, it, it's there's just a more intentionality to it. There's more, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go fast. You can tell that that is kind of his inclination, and that bleeds into other players. It tells other players, hey, I'm going to be receiving this ball faster. i got to be up on my toes. i got to try to receive and play it quickly with one or two touches or three touches. And then the whole team is playing faster, and there's just a better tempo, a better vibe around them. And I think that's where introduction, the introduction of new players can just be so critical. And again, it's why I think Jean-Luc Abusio should be the player that we build around uh, for the rest of this tournament. Uh, no big deal. <laughs> no big statement there. Yeah, and I, I, I really would like to see Busio get another run out I think I'm a little little stronger on the, okay, let's move past you at this point, just because there's only so many games before World Cup qualifying, and I think there should be some urgency in the pool right now. Yeah, I'm not fair. saying we go boycott Soccer House, but I, I <laughs> exactly. think yeah. I, I think there's it's time. I think it's time. But I do agree with you, Taylor. I do agree with the heart of what you're saying, because some of that discourse is just pointless, yeah. and it's a waste of... The people saying it's time, it's the waste of everybody who somehow stumbled across it on Twitter or is forced to listen to it. So I am grateful that we don't tend to fall into that pattern. At least I hope we don't. Um, it, where else do you want to go here, Taylor? We've talked a little yeah. bit about Busio and we talked about him some last night. I think we've, at least I've stated my view on him. Do you want to go harder into Busio? Do you want to talk about some of the tactical changes we saw in the second half, some of the debutants that we saw with James Sands and Williamson can, in addition to Busio? Where do you want to go? We can go, let's go second half and then let's talk about what we want to see going forward and then we can call this okay. one quits. Uh, Joe, uh, with the things we were going to pay attention to in the rewatch conversation from last night, uh, I, I had you noting that you wanted to watch a bit more of Gianluca Busio on the ball once he comes into this game and how he impacts it. I think you also wanted to see how Williamson and Sands performed uh, on second viewing. So uh, for those three players, what were your thoughts second time around? Busio, fun, exciting to see him in this game. I loved my favorite moment. And I said this last night. I can't believe I've forgotten about it until now. And my favorite moment in this whole game is the crowd at Children's Mercy Park, SKC yep. Stadium, just cheering so loud every time he touched the ball. It was it was incredible. It's a great soccer moment, and I loved that. I don't think Busio was just this god at the number six spot, but he had some nice combination play. He broke up play defensively better than I thought he did. That's one thing I'd forgotten to mention until now. So yeah, enough to make me want to see more. Not enough to make me think, okay, this is the guy after Tyler Adams, but certainly certainly enough to get me curious about him patrolling midfield at that sixth spot. With Sands, I think Sands was excellent. Coming in and playing as a center center back, Beralter tweaks things to that 3-5-2-5-3-2 shape when Sands and Williamson come in. I thought he looked very composed on the ball, which is great because we've seen that evolution with NYCFC 
where Sands is still a defensive presence, but he's also transitioning to become more of an attacking threat, more of a threat on the ball. He looked confident on the ball. He had good off-ball movement to create passing angles for his teammates. There was one moment in the 88th minute. He steps forward to create an angle for Sam Vine. So he steps forward out of the back line and almost into the number six spot temporarily to create a spot for Vines to find him. Then Sands gets on the ball and gets out of Haiti's sideline trap and finds Busio. Just that little small moment near the end of the game, it showed this baseline level of competence from Sands that I really liked. He wasn't a dominant defensive force in this game in his cameo off the bench, but I bet if he gets a start at some point, and maybe that means the U.S. going to a back three down the line, I don't know exactly what that would need to be. But I really liked him a lot in this game. Williamson a little bit less so. He had one nice feint and then little dribble, a little touch to evade a defender very late on in the second half. But I don't think he looked quite as sharp. Lost the ball once. Maybe it was a foul early on in his cameo on the far side of the field. Just didn't look as dangerous on the ball as I maybe would have liked him to. But man, I I still saw enough in that one little moment that if this U.S. team is lacking creativity, and they kind of were last night... Maybe putting him in as one of those two number eights in the 4-3-3 could help the U.S. drive the game forward, unbalance opposing defenses, and create chances. So overall, I saw flashes, I saw glimpses, and I saw bits of what Busio, Sands, and Williamson, the three debutantes, I saw what they could do, and that made me very excited. Joe, my final thing uh, plays into a thing you mentioned there, which is that back three. In the quick take, I didn't think it worked very well. Uh, I didn't think it really changed that much for the United States. And, and I think I was more on the idea of like, I'm not sure that's a thing we necessarily need to see going forward. And I will admit that I was totally wrong on that one. Uh, not that it worked really, really well last night, but I thought it worked well enough that if we see a few little changes, a few little tweaks, and we see it improve, I think it could really, really work. I think last night... The U.S. is playing in a certain way, in a certain style to start the game. They make little adjustments as they need to. Then in the second half, you have the substitutions. You have, hey, uh, in the beginning, I wanted you to press here. Now I want you to sit off. But then I want you to do this. And I think the more instructions you get in game, you you take all those on. But it's difficult to then sort of drop them as you need to. And so by the end of the game, you might like be trying to remember what you're supposed to do in 12 different scenarios, three of which are no longer applicable. I think at times when teams look really good near the end of the game, it's because they've taken the shackles off a little bit as opposed to add more restrictions. And I think that is kind of what happened for the U.S. in the second half last night. If they were to start the next game in a back three slash back five, and I think it's a thing that they've practiced, I think the way the U.S. could attack down the wings in those the, with those wing backs, but then still have numbers central and play through the middle if their opponent gets stretched, I think it presents a ton of opportunities and is one that I would very much like to see in the next game against Martinique. So I am hoping that we see them start in a back three for that second group stage game. If they don't, they don't. But I think it's it's a thing that I would much prefer, and I was definitely not in that position last night. No, that's interesting. I'm curious to see. I don't really have a preference, I guess, one way or the other. It's really hard when now you have one healthy winger to run out a 4-3-3 and have it look effective. And I, I guess maybe that's a little bit... I don't know, that's a little simplified because players can play out wide and still be effective even if, even if they're not natural wingers. Like we could see Leggett or Roldan play one of those tucked in winger spots and I think the US would look fine. But it is tough now when you lack a lot of players who are comfortable yeah. in that position 
to play with a front three. And so it might even necessitate that front two. And hey, that might mean James Sands as a center center back from minute one. And that, Taylor, I'm all for. <laughs> all right, Joe. Well, I appreciate your taking the time. I know you've got uh, another show to do today because Joe is forever busy talking soccer and thinking about soccer and probably even sleeping about soccer. I'm sure you can pull that <laughs> off somehow. Uh, then Joe and myself will be back joined by Ryan Bailey and Graham Ruthven to do our sort of transfer catch up. A lot of moves have happened uh, during the Euros even before the Euros that we're now going to kind of go back over. We're going to talk about some of our favorites, some of our least favorites, all that good stuff. Then Joe and I will be reviewing the Martinique game this week. Uh, we'll have allocation disorder. We'll have some listener questions, I think, to start next week. But we've got a lot of good shows coming up. For now, Joe, anything else to add before we call this one complete? Real quick, so, so quick. Uh, I don't think Matt Turner had his best game on the ball. He yeah. had a couple really nervy moments and that Oh, I wanted more for him in this game because that's my biggest question around him. I think he's a great shot stopper. The numbers show that in MLS. But his ability on the ball, I think, has been pretty good for the Revs this year. But, man, he didn't necessarily react the best to pressure. So against Martinique, if they do step in, if he ever is under pressure, I want to see him look comfortable. Because I don't think he quite was, but I think he can be. So that's my my little Matt Turner note to close out this show. All right. Matt Turner note that doesn't end with uh, him being the greatest goalkeeper in the world. I'm not sure how to respond to that one. <laughs> Listeners, I'm sure you'll have thoughts. I look forward to you sharing them. Uh, and yeah, I, like we, we, we enjoy a civil discourse about the national team. So I welcome people's thoughts, concerns, uh, hopes for the next couple games. Uh, but for now, Joe Lowry, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me about the U.S. versus Haiti again. Yeah, thank you, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you all again very soon. Mm-hmm.